0: Past few weeks, what we've been doing is uh, going through saying God's call to uh, husbands, God's call to wives, and now we're going into what's God's call for children. Um, it's a relevant topic just because we have children, and I mean, many of us have children, or we are children. And some have not wondered, and we've come from several different cultures on how long do we honor our parents? What does it mean to honor your parents? What does that look like in different cultures? How does it, how do we apply that? Um, and as I was thinking about parents, and I was thinking about Memorial Day, and as we do reflect and remember the sacrifice of those who, who gave their life uh, for the ultimate cause of freedom, um, I was reminded of the sacrifice of several others, and, and may not such a, such a great price that those have paid. And, and I know many of you in this place have known someone who possibly died for the sake of freedom. I myself had a, a former student of mine when I was a youth pastor. He um, was in Afghanistan and was in the bomb disposal unit. Um, and he passed away actually three months after he was married, and it was a really sad story. I've seen his face plastered in different places, in airports and in booklets, which is strange. But it's just a time to reflect and remember those who paid the ultimate price. And many of us in this room will never have to give our lives for the sake of freedom, but we are grateful for those that have. But we all have recognized those who have sacrificed for great, for greater things than themselves. I'm actually reminded of a few different stories. One was George Washington Carver, great American, great African American man, genius, a man who was a tremendous man of faith. And it's hard to believe that someone would turn down a hundred thousand dollar a year job, especially in that era, uh, in the mid to mid twentieth century. But that's exactly what he did. He tr- he turned down a hundred thousand dollar a year salary. And it's even more incredible that the same man uh, would turn down the offer. But that's exactly what. A, George Washington Carver did, and it was made actually by Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison offered him a job, and so did Henry Ford. I mean, these are great giants of American history because they wanted George Washington Carver to come and work for him, but he was unimpressed with offers of money or prestige. And instead, he chose rather to live in the South, living in relative poverty, wearing the same suit for 40 years. And he had earlier given up a promising position at Iowa State University in order to work with the Booker T. Washington and his struggling Tuskegee Institute. And when friends argued that he could help his people, if he had all that money, Carver replied, if I had all that money, I might forget about my people. And on his tombstone are carved out the following words. It says this. If I, he says, um, he could have had added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world people of all races still honor George Washington Carver. Why? Because he lived a self-sacrificing life for the benefit of others. That, that honor is always earned. We're talking about sacrifice. I'm also reminded of David Livingstone. Some of you might be familiar with that name. He was a pioneer missionary uh, who uh, was from Europe, actually. He was a Scottish man, and he was uh, known as the Africa's greatest missionary. He grew grew up in a one-room tenement building along with six other members of his family, and as a child, he worked from 5.30 a.m. until 8 p.m. in a cotton mill. He was just an ordinary youth, but 60 years after his birth, his body was brought back from Africa and buried with the greats in Westminster Abbey. Uh, He loved Africa so much. Actually, his heart was actually buried in Africa, and his body was taken back to Westminster. And so many people told the people, just bury him where he's at. And this is the response. I mean, so many devoted Africans carried him his body 1,500 miles through the jungle. They knew nothing of what England was like, but they knew his body should not be buried in the remote bush. Along the trail, they were told it was too dangerous to make the trip and were urged to just bury him right where he was. And they said, no, no, very big man cannot bury here. See, Livingston was honored by Africans and Englishmen because he invested his life in fighting the slave trade, believing that bringing the Africans to faith in Christ would help end it. And his life was invested in what he believed to be right, and people of two continents honored him. Sacrificial living tends to be honor. Now, why do I bring up these two stories as well as talk about Memorial Day? Because they're all stories of sacrifice for something greater than themselves. Now, I know that each one of us in this room, many of us will not sacrifice our lives for the sake of freedom. We may not sacrifice our lives for the sake of stopping something that is uh, a scourge on society, such as slavery within Africa. Or we may not sacrifice our lives to make great scientific advancements for the benefit of mankind. But there is something that most of us in this room know how to sacrifice or have sacrificed or know someone who has sacrificed, and that is the sacrifice of a parent. Parents sacrifice a great deal of themselves. They sacrifice their time. Uh, Many of times they sacrifice their sanity. (laughs) They sacrifice money. They sacrifice emotional toil to invest their lives in the lives of their children. And so today I want to talk about that sacrifice that a parent has and the honor that a parent is due and how, as children, uh, how children are to respond to their parents. Now, it might seem like a strange thing. It seems so outside of the gospel, but it's actually not. It's very much in the gospel because God himself has named the family. It is the very foundation of society, and it is being attacked like never before we've seen in history, especially within the United States of America. The very foundations of family, the the family is fraying. I mean, we want to even change and call it modern family and have different definitions of family, and we see the families really, really messed up. But it as the family goes, as society goes, it's very, very true. And God has spoken a great deal about family. And he actually lays out commands within his words how children are to behave to their parents. Not just to behave and get them to obey so that they don't cause trouble. So that it might be a greater picture of an explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And they are trying to figure out how to behave in modern society. And he goes through and he gives different explanations. And he says, this is how a Christian household, those who are lived under the authority of Christ, are to behave and interact. This is the way that you can show people who Jesus is, how you conduct yourself. See, oftentimes, I've heard so many Christians just want to give praise to God. They want to praise. They want to experience God. But yet, their faith doesn't translate into their everyday lives. And I I see time and time again, through the, the Word of God, that there is no separation. That your faith vertically needs to be played out on the horizontal plane. And there is no place greater where that faith is played out than in the family. Between the husband and wife relationship. And then into the children And then into how we are as employees. And it permeates every thread of our being, no matter where we live or where we find ourselves. Our faith has to dictate our behavior wherever we go. And so today we're going to look at that. What does it mean to be a a, a child? Or how should a child submit? When does that level of them being a child and obeying their parents stop? As a person who is, uh, an, I mean, I've grown up in American society, but we have a church of many different nations. And there are several different nations that have different aspects of what it means to be an adult. Some have it earlier, some have it later. Some societies, uh, the child will always be under the authority of the parent. Even if it's they're 50 years old and their parent is 70, whatever the parent says they do, they still do. And we see this specifically within certain Asian societies, some African societies, but all over the place. And we are a culture... And a, I mean, a country, a culture, and a church of many different nations with many different beliefs about this. But no matter where we come from, no matter what our background is, the Word of God, though affirms some things in our culture, it challenges other things. And so where there's an affirmation, we, we say yes, but where it challenges we all, every single one of us, no matter what culture we come from, no matter what our backgrounds have been, no matter what we've been taught, have to place all of who we are under the authority of God's word and let God's word dictate our humanity, how we run our family, how we are as workers, that must triumph over everything else. So let's take a moment, and as we jump in here, to discover how we might be, what are our responsibilities as children, and whether you're a person who has small children in the home, uh, whether you have, you're the parents of adult children, maybe you're a, a step-parent, maybe you're estranged from your children, uh, maybe you don't have any children, no matter what your background might be, this truth applies to each one of us, because we all encounter someone who is a parent at some stage. So whether you're a, you're a grown adult or you're a grandparent or even a great-grandparent, you should still interact and see because I'm not just going to talk about what the sp- responsibilities of children are. I'm also to going to talk about what the responsibility of the parents and in many ways what grandparents are as we go through this together. So let's take a moment. Let's ask God to send forth his spirit to uh, illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive the truth of his word as we open it and uh, discover what he has for us together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, once again come into your presence and are reminded that you are God and we are not. That no matter what goes on in our world, no matter what definitions people vie for or what confusion there is, we know that your word acts as a clarifying truth to our hearts. That we might accurately see, behold, and apply the truths within your word, though might be difficult to receive. We ask that you give us the power, the conviction, and the courage to apply these truths to our lives, to receive what it is that you have for us today. So Lord, speak to us for the glory, honor, and praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right into our text first off. We are in, again, Ephesians chapter 6, and Paul is writing this, as I mentioned before, uh, to the church at Ephesus so that they might know how to follow Christ in the homes. And we had already seen it. Actually, the thought had begun in the latter part of chapter 5. Now, uh, I hope everyone here knows, if not, I'm going to let you know, that the page numbers and the chapter numbers are not part of holy writ, meaning that the Apostle Paul did not write down chapter 6, verse 1. He didn't do that. He was writing a letter to a people. These numbers were added later in the 1500s as a means of understanding and memorizing the word of God more accurately. So... Um so he starts off, Paul actually had developed this thought with uh, wives. He had spoken about wives, but even before that, and I want us to look into verse 15 of chapter 5, because this thought that he is talking about is really uh, elaborated, or uh, the germination of it is in the first or the latter part of chapter 5. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, I'm in verse 15 of chapter 5, uh, but as wise And so he says, "Here, wives, submit to your own husbands." He goes in, and he describes them. he's saying, "Here, live." Um, and, and just kind of uh, summarizing the latter part of church, verse five, or excuse me, the latter part of chapter five, he says, "This is how you are to live at the end of time, before society. The days are evil. live wisely, and this is what a spirit-filled life looks like in the midst of society and in the everyday interactions that you have. Wives, this is how it looks like for you. Husbands, this is how it looks like for you. Children, this is how it looks like for you. And then it mentions slaves. Now, some people say, well, the Bible condones slavery. That's not it at all. What Paul is doing is he is writing to a society. Now, slavery was massive at that time. Uh, Some believe that actually one-third of the entire Roman Empire was in slavery. So it was everywhere you went. And he's not calling for the abolishment of slavery, although he, in Philemon he says, if you can get your, uh, your freedom, please do so. What he's trying to do is trying to show people how to behave in the midst of the society in which they find themselves. So he's saying, slaves, this is how you are to behave. Because they were often in these households, and these households would come to follow Christ. And they're learning what it means. And he's saying, if you want to live before the outside world and win people to Jesus, this is how you are to behave. This is how you are to behave husbands. This is how you are to behave wives. This is how you are to behave children and as slaves. Uh, We might say workers today. But today we're going to really focus on what it means to be uh, children and how we are to live as children. Now before we get started, I want us to understand or recognize why we are to honor our parents. To honor is more than to obey. It is actually means to respect and esteem. It is the form, of, form love assumes toward those who are placed above us by God. We want to honor our parents, but how do we honor them? Let's look at that in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We honor them by obedience. Now, this isn't just obedience for obedience' sake. It is obeying one's parents in the Lord. It doesn't mean that we obey only our parents if they are Christians, and we don't obey if they are not. It means that if you are a Christian, this is how you show it, by obeying your parents. Now, parents are given a responsibility of instructing their children. Now, what are they instructing their children about? Pretty much everything. And if I were to break it down, I would actually look at the book of Luke chapter two as it, it's uh, talking about Jesus when he was growing up. And there are four areas that we can see of Jesus' life of where he grew and where he needed to grow. Remember, he' the Incarnate Christ. He came to identify with us in our humanity. And as he was a child, and he was growing up, he increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with man. So there are four areas that we see here uh, in Luke chapter 2. He grew as a little child. He grew in wisdom and stature, which means he grew mentally and he grew physically. He grew in favor with God and man, meaning he grew spiritually and he grew socially. And as parents, our job is to help our children grow in all four ways. That's what we're to do, to help them understand how the world works. We help them grow mentally, how to understand, how to process. It's actually been said that when a, when a child is growing up, when they're in that uh, up to about zero to age six or even seven or eight, you are their, your, your child's hero, even maybe up to the age of 10. They, you are the hero of the world. You know everything. You are everything to them. But around 10 to about um, 21, <laughs> things change especially when you get into 14, 15, 16, suddenly you know nothing. You know nothing at all, and they, could, they think you're such a loser. You don't understand how the world works. Uh, you can't keep up with what's going on in popular culture. And then usually they, when they get married around that period of time, then suddenly you're a genius again because you understand loans and mortgages and insurance and, and how to get a job and interviews and all these different things. And we're to help them navigate the world. Part of being a parent is preparing them for adulthood. That's what we're to do is prepare them for adulthood so that they leave the house. Now, I often wonder if the reason that some children are not leaving is because we've not accurately or adequately prepared them to live within society. Uh, And we're seeing that. We're calling it the boomerang generation that you're seeing, that you throw them out and they keep coming back. (laughs) Uh, You see that going on a lot. But we are to train our children mentally and also physically, especially when they're young. We feed them. We teach them how to eat properly and how they are to take care of their bodies. We're to help them also to interact socially. And they're watching you all the time. And you might not think that you're actually teaching them, but you are by example. How you interact with your coworkers or your neighbors. What you say about people in traffic. What you do and how you interact, they're picking that up each and every day. And we're also, and this is most important, is to teach them how to grow spiritually. That's actually why God created the family. When God created man and he created woman, what was the one God seeking and creating this pair to come together? He was create, it was for godly offspring, As we've seen in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, after God gives the rallying cry for Israel, which is known as the great Shema, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. What's the second thing that God says? I mean, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. yes, but he says, and you shall teach them. That's the next thing he goes into. He says, you shall teach this to your children. Your job as a parent is to help teach and lead your children spiritually so that they might know who God is through his word and apply that truth to life. Now, I'm not saying you browbeat them with the word of God, but it begins by you yourself cultivating a relationship with God. That if you yourself don't have a relationship with God, then your children aren't going to have a relationship with God. Children lead, I mean, learn by example. They're modeling. They're constantly pretending and looking at you and trying to figure that out, especially when they are quite young. But we are called to teach them. And unfortunately, in our society today, we're letting Netflix and YouTube do it. More than we are doing it ourselves. We're letting the school system do it. We're letting a society do it. The media do it. And there is really a war against the family. As a matter of fact, some secular educators, even back in 1979, felt that their jobs were to help uh, free children from the effect of their parents to emancipate them in society so that they would not have any type of religious training at all or any type of uh, family influence that it would be society that would, in essence, raise the child. And you've seen this go on in pretty disastrous results, and it's played out in very horrendous ways. John MacArthur said that you, only have to be, you don't have to be a Ph.D. to figure out how to control children who aren't trained this way. And that's what we have today. We have a whole world of psychologists and sociologists and psychiatrists trying to figure out how to get control of a generation of children who are out of control because they've not been raised according to the principles of Scripture. We have a whole generation of disobedient children in our nation who are proud, self-centered, and indulgent to their own drives and lusts. They're taught to be the center of their own universe. They've not been told no. Some experts have written about it to the point where they say, please, I mean, there are even jobs, and maybe you might even be in the job, where you're actually trained in how to interact with millennials because they're different than any other generation because they're very very selfish in how they go about different things. Now, not all, and there are some great millennials that are going to make great contributions to society, and some parents have done great jobs with their children, but I'm looking at it as a societal issue. And it's not just millennials. I mean, we're seeing the breakdown and the, the very devaluation of the family going on all around us as the attacks continue. And it's our job to raise and train our children. And it's the children's job to obey the parents and honor them. Now, what does it mean to honor them? Author, uh, Christian author Gary Chapman, he writes that, Honor is the expression of respect or esteem. It is recognizing the importance of someone and seeking to express love and devotion to that person. Honor is a recognition of integrity and uprightness. It shows a genuine concern for others. To honor someone is to draw attention to that person's character In order to truly honor parents, a child must come to understand the nature of right and wrong, of sacrifice and love. The desire to honor comes from recognizing that parents have made right decisions and have sacrificially loved the child and each other. A child comes to respect and honor a parent when he recognizes that the parent's behavior has been truly good. Now, that's easy. I think anybody with this room would say, if the parent's a great parent, it's easy to honor that parent. But what if the parent's not been? I know there's many in this room, you had bad parents, or perhaps you were a bad parent. How do you honor that parent? How do you honor that parent who just seemed to be in your face all the time, who wasn't even there, who was passed out drunk on the, on the couch and had just spent all the entire family's money and there was no food to eat? How do you honor that parent? How do you honor the parent who just left their family behind and had multiple children all over the place? How do we honor that? In our society, this is normative, unfortunately. It's becoming more and more so. And that's where the Bible comes back, and it says that we're still to honor that position that God has placed them in or allowed them to, uh, to, to be in. We honor the position even if we have a hard time honoring the person. And that's the first thing that we need to write down. We need to recognize their position that God has placed them in. And for some, that's easy to do. You can give them honor. For others, you were beaten and abused, neglected and rejected, and you don't know you don't have any desire to be with them. But God still calls us all to honor and recognize their position as our parents. And we have to recognize that God has established the parental role. If there are kids here today, you have to recognize that God established their role. As much as you might hate it, God put them there. Their role is not to be your friend, but to be your parent. Our children have enough friends. Our society is in a very dark place because children are, in essence, running the homes. Parents are being regulated to the sideline. Just this past week, there was a uh, judgment handed down uh, because of a lawsuit that was filed of a mother toward her, 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 the school district. And I believe it's in Iron Junction, Minnesota. It was actually... Um, She sued the school district in January of 2017 because the child, without her approval or her knowledge, helped the child transition from a boy to a girl by giving hormone treatment and helping the child get gender reassignment surgery without the mother's knowledge or approval. And the judge ruled in favor of the school district. So what does that tell you? This is where our society is headed, that it is, it is against the family. It is not nourishing the family. It doesn't want to help the family. Yes, they want to help raise the children. They want to indoctrinate the children. They want to teach children what morality is. But when you have no basis for understanding of who God is, the morality co- becomes completely subjective, and it's whatever you feel in your heart that you want to do. But Jeremiah warned us that the heart is deceptive above all things. It's desperately and deep, deeply wicked. Who can understand it? So we have to understand that God has given the parents the role, not society, not the media, not the school, not even the church in essence, but the parents. And the church's job is to help equip parents to be the parents that God wants them to be. So God has established this role. Now, I've talked about parents, but I want to talk about us as children for a moment because we must fulfill our responsibility to honor them. Now, God takes this very, very seriously. We have to fulfill our responsibility. Now, just to give you an idea how serious this is, in the Old Testament, and thank God, we are no longer under the Old Testament. We are under the New Testament, a new covenant. But in the Old Testament, God took the dishonoring of parents so seriously that if you were to curse your parent, the community would come around, and they would stone you. They would kill you. So if you say, I hate my parents... They would take it seriously and they would kill you. Now, we are not under Old Testament law. And some might say, well, that's harsh. Because God was, God was trying to get them to understand that when you have uh, a rebellious child and that child is rebellious and is left undone, that will permeate into greater society and then that society itself will become undone. God takes it very, very seriously. We're to honor our parents. And it means recognizing the authority, which is a picture of God's authority over us. Now, Paul started off prefacing this section by commanding them to be filled with the Spirit, as we saw in Ephesians 15 through 20. He then goes on to describe what the Spirit-filled life looks like for husbands, wives, as we can see here. And this is how it is to be for children. Now, the, the, word, the Greek word for obey uh, is, a, is a compound word, hubakuo. And what it means here, it's the first part of the word is uh, hupo or hypo and means under. And the second part is akuo, which means to hear. It means to listen to those you are under. It is acting under the authority of the one speaking. Or in other words, really listening to the one giving the charge or order and suggests attentively listening and responding to them properly. And it's to parents that we are to obey. Now, the Greek word for children here is interesting. It's just a general word, tekna, and it's a general word for offspring. And it doesn't give a definitive age whereby we obey or not obey. It just says obey. Some scholars believe that children should be obedient for their entire life to their parents. uh, But I'm not quite sure that this is in view here. And I've seen this within different societies, especially when I was in India. I was interacting with a young woman, and I, uh, she was married with a child. And I said to her, how did you come to faith in Jesus? She said, my father believed, so the entire family believed. Not an understanding of personal faith, but it was the understanding that if this, this parent did it, everyone in the family was allowed to. Now it's a different society, very collective. While in, in our society, we are very individual. And how we go about things, and it's different. Very, uh, they understand more things corporately, and we actually see biblical precedents for that, by the way, in the Book of Acts. So we have to understand how this authority affects and what it looks like. What does it mean then to be a child? When does that stop? When does our responsibility to our parents stop, or does it? Now, my my. Uh, After studying this passage, really breaking this down and looking through a few different passages, I believe that the children that are you speaking of are children that are young enough to still be flexible to learn and are still living in the home. And I believe that that, that God calls obedience for children in Colossians chapter 3, which also has a household code, in Ephesians chapter 5. And in both instances, when he says obey, the word that's used in the understanding of that passage, these are children that are still in the home. Remember, Paul is calling for a a household and how it interacted with one another. But to go outside of that and get married meant that you were establishing another household. Now, it is true that especially within ancient Israel, that sometimes a household would have multiple generations in it. But there seems to be something that's different that's going on here. There seems to be a progression where Paul is re- rooting the responsibility of children's obedience in their childhood. Now, when does childhood end? That's the question that we have in our society today. Uh, when I was young, I mean, uh, when my parents were young, my parents got married. At, 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 it was a normal age at, at their time. My father was 19 and my mother was 18 years old. This is in the late 19 uh, or the early 1960s, and that was pretty normal time. But we've seen that time change and shift now. I know when I was 18 years old, I thought I was going out and moving on my own, but I've seen a lot of my peers and and the generations come behind me. That stays later and later and later. People now are in their 20s, late 20s and 30s, sometimes even 40s and still living at home. Uh, And that's not necessarily a bad thing per se, because again, in the ancient world, you had multiple generations that were there, but it depends on how that plays out. If one is just living off of the benevolence of the other, then that's a problem. If that's a problem. Now, Uh, We have to understand the role and responsibility um, that our parents have and our responsibility as in children. Now, what does this childhood end? Again, it's difficult, especially when one compares culture to culture. In several cultures, the child maintains obedience to the parents for the entire lifetime of the parent. In case of girls, it would be until the daughter was married and then her primary duty was to her husband. Again, this is in the ancient world within Judaism. In our culture, we say an adult is legally someone who is 18 years old, but with prolonged adolescence, it goes much further. Most scholars believe that childhood obedience ends as soon as they are old enough to know what is right and wrong and can live on their own. So if the child is still living in the home, they should be obedient. Now, I believe that we're to obey our parents when we are young, but obedience stops when we have our own household. However, we are always to honor. So obedience while we're young, but honor always. Jesus, I think Jesus referred to this in Mark chapter 7, verse 8 through 13. And I'm using this as a passage. The primary point of this is not to gather uh, parenting per se. Jesus is actually rebuking them uh, for treasuring their traditions over the word of God. But in this is the germination or understanding of adulthood. And here's what I mean. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he doesn't say obey there. He's quoting Moses about honoring. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Uh, He's using an term there then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now let me explain what's going on here rather quickly. These guys had a responsibility to honor their parents even as they aged. These are adults Jesus is talking to, not young children in the home. These are adults. And he says your responsibility even as you age is to honor your parents and help take care of their needs. It's part of the responsibility that you have. He says, You're not doing that. You're saying that you're going to give that gift to God rather than your parents. You're actually nullifying what God says. You're making the Word of God ineffective because you've elevated your tradition over the commandments of men. But notice he says honor. He doesn't say obey. He's saying honor your parents. Now, the context may not warrant that. He's not addressing children per se, uh, I mean, especially small children. He's addressing adult children, and he's talking about honoring. So the only two instances that we see God calling uh, in the New Testament, God calling children to obey their parents is in Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. And both those instances seem to point to when children are younger. So obedience always, but, uh, I mean, obedience for the time when we're young and honor always. And this other passage is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, or nineteen through twenty-one, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Again, the idea is the children are under the influence of the parent and they are still growing and maturing. We obey until we're out of the home, but we honor forever. Now, children. Are you honoring your parents by obedience? Adult children, are you still honoring your parents? Do you thank them for what they've done for you? Do you recognize their position, even if you may not respect their person? And for the sacrifice, do you have you recognize them for the sacrifices they've made? Do you listen to their counsel? Do you obey them, especially if you're younger children? Are you honest with them about what you've been doing, younger kids, or where you have been or what you've done? How do we honor them as adults? One way is by taking care of their needs as they age. It may mean helping them out with various things or communicating with them, talking to them, visiting them. It may mean helping them navigate the waters of insurance, wills, estates, funeral planning, and the like. But we need to make sure that we're honoring them. Now, children, especially children in the home, we need to understand that there is a great motivation to why we do this. Let's look at the second part of verse 1 into verse 2. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's a bonus commandment. It gives you a bonus. Follow it. God gives you bonus, and we have to remember God's promise that if we obey and we honor our parents in this regard, then we will um, we will be blessed. That's the third point that you need to actually second point you need to write down. We have to remember God's promise. Now, what is this promise? Uh, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament a promise that was aimed at the nation of Israel as they were going into the promised land. But he's reappropriating it for the New Testament church and this new group of believers. Now, we are Gentiles, not recipients of the promised land promises. Yet Paul is reappropriating them for us in our day and area. And what does that mean? It's a promise that God will bless us. It's a, com- a promise that if we do what He asks, especially in regards to our parents, that we will ble- He will bless us. Part of that blessing is completely supernatural, with God making a pathway for you, uh, or God, God um, helping sustain you in pretty amazing ways, such as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse five, when God is speaking to the nation, and he says, "I've led you 40 years in the wilderness." Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. Meaning that you've walked around 40 years, and you don't have to get new shoes. Why? Because God sustained it. This is how he supernaturally upheld you. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but these are small ways that God will bless. And we see this brought out again in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7 through 10. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of, m- of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. God has done good to them. So he's blessed them, and he will bless us. It may not be with prosperity. It might be... I mean, it could be that way. It could be with good health. It could be with good favor with other people. It could have a good reputation. It could take many different, uh, have many different outcomes. So he would bless them, and he would also cause them to be bountiful. He'll cause us to be bountiful if we obey and honor our parents. And here, let me give you an idea of that. It's what he says. You may live long in the land. You will have bounty. You will be able to, have to be sustained, and Proverbs talks about this in verse, chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your bars will be, barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Meaning that God will bless and make you bountiful. And that's just one way. Honoring parents is one way by which we will be blessed and made bountiful. God will make sure of it. It doesn't always mean financially. Sometimes it may mean in good health, a reputation, good relationships, favor with others, but it reveals itself in several different ways. But let's go back to our text. The thought of verse 4 is connected to verses 1 through 3. And I'm sorry if I'm going through this rather quickly, but we're short on time. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Uh, when you look at the New Testament, you want to look and analyze by paragraph. Okay? Paragraphs convey different thoughts. And so if there's a, several sentences, that several, those sentences are to support that main thought that's in that paragraph. And here, the fathers do not provoke or exasperate in the New International Version, is actually supporting this understanding of what's going on with the children, because the children are to be obedient. And knowing that, Paul is saying that there is a prescription here for fathers and parents. And we have to rely on God's prescription. So it's not just for the children, but it's for the parents as well. Now, Paul addresses fathers, and while it can mean parents, Paul is more turning his attention to fathers because they had legal control of their children and were responsible for their instruction from about age seven until they were considered adults. And in the ancient world, girls did not normally receive formal education but were taught household duties. It is significant that Paul wrote children instead of boys. Girls were valued less in ancient society, but in the Scripture, their... their. Um, raised up and valued and given a greater dignity. Paul didn't accept the limitation of society. And in the ancient world, fathers had absolute control and were sometimes harsh. That is why Paul includes the warning against provoking children to anger. And the word for exasperate or provoke is a rare word. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, it's the idea of being up close and being in their face. In essence, pushing the child's buttons with unrealistic expectations. And so a father, I mean, who had a greater responsibility, and I, at that time especially, but in our society, we see both men and women, husbands and wives. And some of you are in step situations where you're not in the main parenting role, but the other parent is, and there's a step parent and all of these different subparts in it. So we have to say, how do we do this as best as we can and live according to the word of God as we, where we find ourselves? But no matter how you are, no matter what type of influence you have on your child, you're not to exasperate or provoke them to anger with unrealistic expectations for their life. And I've seen some parents do this. They have unrealistic expectations to whom their child would marry or the education they would receive, their, uh, whatever type of achievement, how much money they would make. I mean, so many different things. And we have to make sure not to exasperate or provoke them to anger. So it requires us not to incite our children to anger. Above all else, Paul is warning fathers against goading their children into a state of perpetual resentment. He's not thinking of extreme instances like disinheriting, but the everyday tensions of family life. Fathers must not make unreasonable demands. Otherwise, children being over, overcorrected may lose heart. As we saw in Colossians 3, don't put unrealistic expectations on your kids. You will cause them to resent or get angry with you. Lastly, bring them up does not do justice to the notion of care expressed by the verb, particularly since Paul's previous use of the verb in 529 feeds conveys the idea of like nurture, instruction. What we are to do as parents is to instill in our children a love for God. And here's the thing if you want to see your children obey, then you need to make sure you're cultivating a relationship with God first. And it's not about them following every rule. It's about learning how to instill a greater love for God. That's the main overarching concept. Have you done that for those that are, uh, have grown children? Have you failed? Some of you might have come to faith later in, in life, and you miss this. Or maybe you grew up in the church, but somehow you miss this to them. I would encourage you to continue to pray and love them. Pray for them. Uh, exhort them. Call them. Seek to build a relationship with them, especially if your child is estranged from you. But continue to pray for them. While they still have breath, there is opportunity. And God will hear your prayers. You might, have, you might have messed up for years and years and years, but God is faithful. And God has a tendency to make straight lines with crooked sticks. And that he can still reach and he can still do. And you might have blown it from years ago. You might have come to Christ later in life. You were a complete idiot for several years, and now you're trying to do what God wants you to do. Don't give up and don't despair love them now. And for those of us who have small children in the home, that we are to teach them. And it doesn't always mean sitting down and having to have a formal devotion, although that can be a part of it, but it means seeking God moments to teach them and instruct them about who God is. While you have influence, and honestly, that's a short window. Uh, as they age, it becomes many more you know, different distractions, and our influence is not as great as it was before, but you're still the main influencer in your child's life. But the greatest example that you can leave, I mean, the greatest thing you can do for them is leave a great example of godliness, of seeking Jesus. And for those who have young children or you want to have children, are you cultivating that walk now? Husbands and wives, are you showing what a marriage should look like and displaying it to your kids? Husbands, are you loving your wives? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? And now, and for those of us who have adult parents, are you honoring them? by helping them if they're still around. Let's pray for one another. Let's truly be the church that God wants us to be. Church is not just Sunday morning. It's Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. And that's a lot of played in our day-to-day interactions with the people that are closest to us. That's where our faith is really played out. And some of you are are single and you want to get married, then you need to put these, these principles into place now so that when you get to that place, you will know what you are to do. Because we all, I believe, if we really want to follow Christ, we want to see Christ in every part of our lives. Because Christ is our life, not a part of our lives. He is our life. He was crucified for our sins. He died on the cross for us. He was buried, and he was rose again for our justification that through him we can have new life, we can have hope, and we can have his spirit within us helping us live the life of Christ so a watching world will be won for the glory, honor, and praise of his name. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Lord, our God, one message is so insufficient to talk about the complexities of the family experiences that the people here have. Lord, I know some people have grown up in situations where they were abandoned, they were abused, whether it was physically, sexually, emotionally, verbally, some even spiritually. Uh, Lord, I pray that we might seek to truly apply the word of God in fear and trembling as we seek to work out our salvation in a way that is honoring to you. Lord, help us to see how our salvation affects every thread and aspect of our lives. Help us as fathers and mothers, whether, what are, what are, no matter what situation we're in, no matter what choices we are, no matter what type of influence we have, whether the children are living with someone else or they're with us, help us to gravitate and hold on to the word of God. And help us to seek you in prayer and ask you to intercede in our lives. Lord, you are great at taking the broken pieces of our lives and recreating something, taking beauty out of ashes. And Lord, for many of us, we have messed up. Uh, we are, we bear upon our souls the scars of previous generations and numerous hurts. And Lord, I pray that you help renew us and make us to be the people you want us to be. Lord, whether that means we're, we're parents or even grandparents, and, and the influence of, uh, upon the next two generations is not as great as we would like, but help us to pray for them, to leave a godly legacy by loving the people that are in our sphere of influence and truly exhibiting and submitting to all the truths within the word of God as we seek to be spirit-filled, cross-centered, gospel-saturated believers that are truly exuding, declaring the glory of your name. So, Lord, they've given us, they've, our parents, so many of them have given great sacrifices. Uh, some have done so faithfully, and we're grateful for that. Help us as parents to sacrifice well. Help us as children to obey and honor. And may your name receive glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.